The reading for today's sermon is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptised, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious living God, we thank you for drawing near to us this day, for lifting us up into your presence and for opening your most sacred lips and speaking to us in the scriptures. Please may your spirit speak these words afresh to us, that we may be conformed into the likeness of the Son whose body we are, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit and let me add my welcome, especially to those of you who are visiting us today. We have a, a few of the Dizzler family here. Actually, we have quite a lot of the Dizzler family here. It is wonderful to see you with us. And uh, it's not the Dizzler family, obviously, it's Katie Dizzler's family. Welcome. It's great to have you with us. And I've also had the privilege of bumping into a couple of other unfamiliar faces. It's great to have you with us. We hope you enjoy worshipping God with us today and that we have a chance to get to know you uh, afterwards. Today I want to address one of the most obvious dividing lines within the Bible-believing church across the world. That is the distinction between two different views of baptism. The distinction will be very familiar to you between Baptist and Paedobaptist Christians. Baptists argue that baptism is only to be administered to people who are old enough to give a believable profession of faith for themselves, a verbal profession of faith. And so in the words of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, quote, those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Some mighty men of God gathered in London in 1689 and produced that. The Paedobaptist position, by contrast, says that it's not actually just adult converts who ought to receive this sacrament, but that the scripture teaches that all children of at least one faithful and believing parent ought also to be baptized. Westminster Confession of Faith, also some fairly godly men gathering in London a few decades before, wrote this, quote, not only those who do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized, end of quote. And so just to clarify where we stand as a church, and I know that this may be helpful to some of you who are visiting, uh, we are a paid Baptist church, so all the officers here, uh, myself included as one of the pastors, subscribe to that paid Baptist stance, that's what we teach. However, it's not the case that members are required to subscribe to this view. We are blessed here at All Saints. 
with some members who are Baptists, and that's fine. We don't make it a requirement for members. They're just required to say what Mr. and Mrs. Dizzler said a few minutes ago, that they're happy to sit under the teaching of those who are paid Baptists what we call the historic teaching of the Protestant Reformation, as we seek to grow together and all of us seek to deepen our understanding of the Word of God. However, that does not mean that we never address this. We do want to address this subject, recognizing that there will be people here who have conscientious differences of opinion about it, but actually, I need to teach you what I think. Do, am I trying to persuade you if you're a Baptist? Well, yes, obviously I am. But we've already welcomed you as members and you're most welcome as visitors. We're not saying anything critical about you as Christians, but we've got to teach what we've got to teach. And so here's one of those occasions where the Word of God just presents us with a fairly blunt text that requires us to say something about this topic. Because this, this passage today really is quite illuminating on this issue. Just to recap where we've come to, this will be familiar for those of you who are here regularly, but for those of you who are not, we're working our way through the book of Acts. We've got to Acts chapter 2. The famous day of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God was poured out on the infant church, accompanied by these miraculous signs, wind, fire, and the speaking in tongues, unlearned languages, chapter 2, verse 12. It provoked quite a reaction. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And so Peter went on to explain what it means. It doesn't mean they're drunk. Like the cacophony of different noises coming from all these people doesn't mean they're drunk. No, this is what was prophesied by Joel, the prophet who said explicitly the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh and the sons and daughters would prophesy. And so what you're hearing is the prophesying, not actually in unintelligible languages, but in intelligible ones. The languages of all the nations under heaven that were spoken by all the Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And what they're declaring is, summarized by Peter in his sermon, which is probably one of the things that they were declaring in all those other tongues, that Jesus, the crucified Nazarene, is both Christ, the Davidic King, and Lord, the divine judge and savior of the world. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Peter's sermon provokes this astonishing reaction. Well, maybe it's not so astonishing when you realize it's whom you crucified with which Peter concludes his sermon. Verse 37, look at this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, literally stabbed in the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? The heart... It's an interesting metaphor in the Bible. In, in our contemporary uh, speech and in literature, the heart is the seat of the emotions. I love you with all my heart. But that's not how the image is used in Scripture. The image in Scripture has to do with the combination of the cognitive, the thinking, and volitional, acting faculties. So somebody who's cut to the heart is like, oh my goodness, I finally understand and now I realize I have to do something. That's what the metaphor of the heart signifies. That's how it's used in Scripture. If you want to talk about the kidneys in Old Testament and New Testament, if you want to talk about the, the emotions, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you want to talk about the emotions in Old and New Testament um, imagery, you talk about the kidneys or perhaps the bowels. That's the image that's used. The heart means, what shall we do? What shall we do? And as the passage unfolds, Peter tells them, and he says three things, 
about what they should do with and for their children. Obviously, he has instructions for them personally, but this passage illuminates this particular question that I'd like us to reflect on. And if you've got an order of worship, I know you have, in the insert, you'll find a little outline there, which will tell you, tell you where we're going. Just to reassure you, the first point is quite considerably longer than the second and third, so don't worry if the minutes tick by, the second and third will be somewhat quicker. The first thing that Peter says, in relation to this question that I want us to focus on, about the, the place of children, and particularly the question of whether baptism is for them, Peter says, in this text, our children inherit the promise of the Father. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 37, look with me. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You see, there's a question that is asked. What are we supposed to do? Verse 38, Peter gives them an instruction. First, Peter said to them, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he promises them a gift, if you will do this. Verse 38, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What a remarkable promise. If you turn to Christ and are baptized, you will receive the same intimacy with God which you have seen in these 120 disciples who've received a particular manifestation of this gift, allowing them to speak miraculously. And then he explains precisely who this promised gift is for. Look at verse 39. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Notice three categories. You, your children, and all who are far off. The phrase there translated far off refers almost exclusively in the New Testament to Gentiles. It's used a couple of times in uh, Ephesians 2, 13 and 17, in that way. Interestingly, it's actually used in uh, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Um, the father saw him when he was far off, which suggests, of course, what you, you know if you've studied that parable in detail. It's not just a parable about random sinners coming back to Jesus. It's actually a parable about the Jews and the Gentiles, the older brother being the, the critical Jewish leadership who resented the grace that God has shown to sinners like us from every nation under heaven. So those who are far off, you and your children. I'm tempted just to move on at this point. It, in one sense, it really is that simple. Our children inherit the promise of the Father, the promise of the Spirit. And therefore, they're to be baptized, repent and be baptized, for the promises for you and for your children. It's sometimes claimed, and I have many Baptist friends who've said this to me, that there are no examples of infant baptism described in the New Testament. It's actually not true. There are. Here. Now, if we were going to do theology by proof text, we could stop. But we're not going to do theology by proof text. Our Baptist friends do not do theology by proof text, and neither shall we. You see, whenever we're trying to think clearly, especially in matters of conscientious disagreement among thoughtful, godly, 
biblically-minded Christians, we need to do more than just quote a Bible verse and go and have a cup of coffee. Besides which, that would make this the shortest sermon ever preached in this church, and certainly the shortest ever by me, and I'm not having that. (laughs) What I want to show you is how this simple one-liner is grounded on the foundations of covenant theology, the unfolding plan of how God relates to his people through history. So let's dig a bit deeper and see how far down this rabbit hole goes. Let me just make a couple of, I think, three or four, or five, no, three, four four additional points under this heading of the Father's promise. First, let's forget about children for a second, and notice what this text teaches us about the ritual of baptism. This is actually as much a shock to paid Baptists as it is to Baptists, in my experience. Look at verse 38, and just pay really close attention to what it says. You know, I've often said, please bring your Bibles to church. We're not skimming over the surface here. I want you to look at the logical structure of what Peter says. He says, look, repent and be baptized, and you might say, and then in brackets, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then a certain consequence will follow. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The consequence of the gift of the Spirit of God comes when you fulfill these two conditions. You repent and are baptized. Repent, and everyone's like, yeah, of course. We repent, we turn to Christ, turn from our sin, and we receive the Spirit of God. You're baptized, and that external application of water brings about your filling internally with the Spirit of God. Just let that sink in for a second or two. This is not just a symbol. The baptism of which Peter speaks here, which is the baptism of water, which he's about to administer to 3,000 people, somehow brings about the internal infilling with the Spirit. Now, it's not that the Lord can't do it some other way. We know from, for example, the life of John the Baptist that before he was even born, never mind before he was baptized, he was filled with the Spirit. But the normative pattern, the way in which God works internally, is that he brings about through the external means of baptism, the internal filling with the Spirit. It's not that there's magic in the water, that's Roman Catholic doctrine. This is Protestant as the day is long. In fact, it's as Protestant as Calvin. John Calvin's famous illustration of baptism is like the seal on a great document. He he encourages us to think of the Bible or the promises of the gospel, the words contained in the Bible, as like a, 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 a document written by a great king. And he says, well, that document is worthless unless it's got the seal of the king on it because you don't know who it's from and you don't know who it's to. But he says the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are like the seal on a document. So if I, illustration, if I gave you a piece of paper that just said you're entitled to inherit my house when I die, you'd be like, well, I mean, that's thanks, but no thanks. I could have done that myself. But if I sign it, and have it sealed by a competent legal authority, you just gonna inherit all my plumbing problems. <laughs> Mercifully, we don't have any plumbing problems yet. I'm told it's just a matter of time. You see what Calvin is saying? He is saying somehow mysteriously, God does something in the hearts 
internally by his spirit through this ritual, this rite of baptism. Actually, just in passing, this helps us to understand why historically baptism has been administered by pouring or sprinkling, at least in Baptist churches, mostly. Um, some Eastern Orthodox don't do that, and of course our Baptist friends routinely baptize by immersion. But actually, the point is to reflect the outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is poured down or sprinkled from on high, think of um, Ezekiel 36. And so we cause the mode of administration of the sacrament to echo or mirror the mode of the reality which it seals, the outpouring of the Spirit. Uh, to be immersed in water in Scripture is actually a manifestation of judgment, divine judgment. Exodus, Pharaoh in the sea, Noah. Well, Noah did, wasn't immersed in water. The water fell on Noah from above, but he wasn't immersed in it. It was those under judgment who were immersed in it. Think of um, Isaiah, Isaiah 8. The Assyrian army will rise like a flood up to the neck of Judea and almost to drown them. Immersion in water is a manifestation of judgment. Those who are being saved through water have water sprinkled down on them, but don't get immersed in it, which is why we want to sprinkle water on the head of babies. Second uh, detail under this overall heading of the promise of the Father, it brings us to the theological heart of this text. Look at verse 39 again. The promise is for you and for your children. Now just think, we've got to just press pause and ask some basic questions. What's the promise that's being spoken of here? What exactly is being promised to you and your children? It doesn't say in the immediate context. You have to go back a few verses, but you don't have to go back far. Just look at verse 33, that towards the conclusion of Peter's sermon, speaking of Jesus, he says, he's exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you're seeing, of he seeing and hearing. What's he received from the Father? The promise of the Spirit. Very interesting, same word in verse 33 as here in verse 38. The promise of the Spirit is the thing that Jesus received himself from the Father, which he, sorry, verse 39, which he then bequeaths to us. It's actually the same thing spoken of in chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, while staying with them in uh, Jerusalem, Jesus said, don't depart until you've received, quote, the promise of the Father, which is the gift of the Spirit. So the promise of the Father is the gift of the Spirit of God. It makes sense of why Joel's prophecy is in there, for all who are, well, for all flesh, Joel says. So it's for all who are far off. Peter, that's elucidating what Joel means. So the promise first is the promise of the Spirit. But there is another echo here which sits alongside this promise of the Spirit to which Peter is definitely making reference. Just look with me at verse 39 again. Where have you heard this before in the Bible? For you and for your children. That is a direct quote from one of the most significant covenantal texts in the whole of the Old Testament. It comes out of Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, where God is ratifying the promise that he's made previously in giving Abraham the sign of circumcision. And what he says, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Ah, you see where he's going? It's not just me and you, Abe. It's me and you and your offspring after you. 
to be an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you all the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. You see three times he says, and to your offspring, and to your offspring, literally, and to your seed. Three times he says that. And by the end of verse 8, as I've remarked on numerous occasions before, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It's as though Abraham disappears out of view. God's really only concerned about the kids. Well, that's because God's got his eye on a thousand generations, you see, so it's always looking forward to the next generation. So you see, three times in this foundationally significant covenant establishment text in Genesis 17, the Lord says that the promise is for you and for your seed, you and for your children. And Peter's like, how can I make it clear that the familial structure of the covenant sign and the covenant blessings, which you're all familiar with from 1,500 years or more, 2,000 years of Old Testament history, all of the fact that the blessings go to you and to your children, how can I make it clear to you all, Jews gathered from every nation under heaven, that that same structure is preserved under the new covenant with baptism? I know, I'll just quote from the foundational text. The promise is for you and for your children. And there's not a single Jewish person in that community of 3,000 people listening who would have been remotely surprised. It's like, well, obviously. <laughs> That's just what God promised us. What, what are you going to do, take away the promise? Of course not. So what you've got then, the promise of the Father actually is two things. It's the promise to Abraham and it's the promise of the Spirit. And you think that's two things? Actually, it's not two things, it's one thing. Because if you read Galatians chapter 3, you discover that the promise is the gospel preached in advance, which is the promise of the Spirit through faith. If you just read Galatians 3, Galatians is a complex book. But Galatians 3 brings together this promise of the Spirit through faith, not through works of the law. Leave behind your Torah observances, you Jews. You don't have circumcision anymore. The promise of the Spirit through faith is then brought together with the promise to you and to your seed in Galatians chapter 3. But then wait a second. The objection comes from the Baptist friends at the back. Sorry. <laughs> Children can't have faith. You see? Gotcha. Because Galatians 3, right? How do you receive the Spirit? Through faith. And we all know that children can't have faith, don't we? Until we get to Psalm 22. Just to pick one example. Look with me at Psalm 22. As David recalls, actually doesn't recall, he speaks about the experience that he had as an infant before he could remember it. And he describes what kind of disposition he had to the Lord his God. In Psalm 22, you know, it's a very famous psalm. It begins with the words that Jesus quotes from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's having a very bad day. <laughs> and he's anguished and doesn't understand what, why, is, why is God doing this? Because, verse 9, you are he who took me from the womb. You've been with me since before my birth. Quote, verse 9, you made me trust you at my mother's breasts. That is to say, when I was so young that I can't even remember now what it was like, when I was three days old, breastfeeding infant, I trusted you. The Hebrew verb is just batach. It means to trust. It's the same verb that's used dozens, scores of times. 
to speak of adult faith in the Bible, and here it's used to speak of infant faith, because it turns out that infants can have faith too. Now, infant faith is different from adult faith, because infants are different from adults. Right? Everything about all of us is different. Your faith is different from my faith, because you're different from me, and you're all different from each other. We all bring our dispositions, what we've learned, our mistakes, our ignorance, and that becomes part of who we are, and the subjective existential reality of our being conditions everything we do, including our faith. So children trust in the same way that they do everything, in a childlike way. Maybe they express their faith by their dependence on their mothers for feeding. But we can't deny that infants have faith, because the Bible says that David did when he was an infant. If the Bible conflicts with your theology, change your theology. So the promise to Abraham, which is the promise of the Father, which is the promise of the Spirit, which is the promise for you and for your children, is here extended in Acts 2, and they're told, when you come to be baptized, bring the kids. This makes sense of the historical situation. This is a third point just to make under this heading of the promise of the Father. Just think about the historical setting for a second. What's happening in Jerusalem? Well, the place is full of pilgrims. This is, um, we think of Pentecost as like this Christian festival, but before it was a Christian festival, it was the Jewish festival, the Feast of Weeks. It happened on the same day, and it was basically the, I mentioned this when we talked about um, Acts 2, 1 to 13, that the outpouring of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant Feast of Weeks. It was a harvest festival. All the blessings of the land celebrated and given back to God. Here it's all the blessings of being in Christ received and offered back to God in praise and worship. And so all these Jews are there, and Deuteronomy 16 verse 11 is very clear. Bring your children and your son and your daughter They've all got to come to the Feast of Weeks, so there they all are with their kids, and they're there to anticipate and experience the, the blessings of God. And in fact, this is quite common because, according to the Old Testament, the children were present at all the covenant meals. The Passover, the sacrificial meals, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Weeks, all of them. And you can just imagine the riots that would have ensued if Paul had said, it's great news, everybody, Jesus has, Jesus has become Christ, Jesus is the Lord. Now God's promises are, they've finally reached their climactic fulfillment and now you have to leave your children at home. You may not bring them to the feasts and they may not have the sacraments of the new covenant because God is so generous. It's like, what? You, think for a second. You know what happens in first century Jewish Christian communities when you change anything about their understanding of the sacraments. Go to Galatia, and you say, listen, you, you shouldn't administer circumcision anymore. You get not quite blood in the streets, but you get absolute chaos erupting in the church. Can you imagine? Just think for one second. If all these Jewish people, they've, also, they've already got to swallow that the sign of circumcision, which marks them out from the nations, has now, now passed away. It was good for a time, but now it's passed its sell-by date, like milk that's gone off. It was great, but you don't want to eat sour milk. Now we've moved into a new age, a new era. They've already got to swallow that. And then you say you can't, have, you can't bring the kids at all? Whew, you, you would, the silence on, of the New Testament on that issue is absolutely deafening. 
you would have had Jewish Christians writing to their members of parliament and congressmen, I can tell you, to complain. And there is not a single word about it. The reason is simple, because just as the children were welcome into the community of the people of God and to receive the sacrament of initiation under the old covenant, now not just boys but girls receive the sacrament of baptism as children. And just as children were welcome at the old covenant meals, now they're welcome at the new covenant meal. At which point, I've not just offended all the Baptists, but all my Presbyterian friends are like, what? Are you saying that the argument for giving baptism to children also supports paid a communion, welcoming them at the Lord's table? Yes, it's exactly what I'm saying, which is why we practice it here. Like it was done for the first 1,100 years of the church. It's quite right. The, uh, our Baptist friends who cr- criticize some paid Baptist theologies because it's like, if you're going to baptize them, you ought to commune them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Finally, just briefly, uh, there are, uh, some of our Baptist friends will raise other, other questions about this. For example, verse 38, doesn't this tie baptism to repentance? Repent and be baptized. Shouldn't we wait until they can repent? Well, hold on. Repentance is the flip side of faith. You've already discovered that children can have faith, childlike faith, but faith. Have you noticed that as your children grow up, they display repentance? It's not a day where it switches on. It grows as they grow, just like their faith grows as they grow. We should think of children as not just baby believers, but baby repentant followers of Jesus. Verse 39, another objection that some of my friends have raised over the years. Doesn't it say, it's for all whom the Lord our God calls to himself? Well, yeah, it does. But hold on a second. I mean, that that doesn't exclude children. The children have just been called. It's for you and for your children. Now, of course, there are two senses of the word call. There's the outward call, which here both um, the children and the adults have received and respond to. The outward call, the covenantal call of God, is the basis of baptism. You're, you're, you're called to God. Adults and children should be baptized. Now, we know there's another sense of the word call. Uh, it's what we might call the decretal reality, the reality in the mind of God from before the foundation of the world, which doesn't exactly line up with the covenantal reality, does it? You know that some people who are called to faith in Christ and do profess faith for a while turn away tragically, like seed on rocky ground. But that's as true for adults as it is for children. If you're going to exclude children because you're not 100% sure that they're elect yet, you just have to exclude the adults as well, and nobody's going to do that. What we do is we baptize those who are here called. The call is the external call to come with your children. And then, well, as we'll see in the next few minutes, We urge and exhort them to continue in the faith and to grow in their faith throughout their lives. So they've received the promise of the Father. Second, more briefly, our children now belong to Jesus. Our children belong to Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 38 again. This is one of those phrases, you know, you you know there are bits of the Bible you just skim over because you've read them so many times? Slow down and listen to this for one second. 
Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Just hover the cursor over that for a second. What does it mean to be baptized into Jesus' name? What it means is we belong to Jesus. Baptism is a naming ceremony. Pastor Neil highlights this sometimes in the way that he prays and administers baptism. That the name Christ has been placed upon the baptized person. Illustration. You go to an art gallery and you see these magnificent paintings. I went to an art gallery recently and one of the young ladies at All Saints had exhibited some paintings there. How do I know which, one was, which ones were hers? Well, they had, I won't tell you her name, she'll be embarrassed. They had her name written on it, several of them. This is mine. Jesus has written his name on this work of art. Think about what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus saying when he writes his name on you? He's saying, you belong to me. I claim ownership of you. He claims credit. Anything that you see that's good in this came from me. It's not you. Jesus didn't come along, find all the good people, and think, that's pretty good work of art. I think I'll write my name on that. Then everyone think how wonderful I am. No, he sees these terrible, torn-up, ruined sinners, and he mends us. How does he do that? Well, by having his spirit poured into them to renew and transform us. And then he writes his name on us and claims credit for everything good in us that he's doing to renew us. And also he increases the value of what he writes his name on. Now, don't get me wrong. It is true. All of us are made in the image of Christ. And unbelievers and believers alike are made in the image of God. But all who are baptized into Christ are being renewed in Christ's image. And Christ ascribes value and dignity to us that we don't have in ourselves. We are worthless in ourselves, are we not? Have mercy on me, the sinner, said the man before he was sent home righteous before God. This was illustrated wonderfully a few years ago when a a painting was found in Italy. Uh, Originally, the people who found it thought that it was a a copy of a painting by Rembrandt called The The Adoration of the Magi. Turns out that later analysis showed, by about 2017, people realized this is an original. And because it was original, because it was by the hand of the great Rembrandt himself, it was valued at, get this, somewhere between 83 and 238 million dollars. If it had been by me, (laughs) shame, really. (laughs) Now just think about what that means. Think of the, the blessing that that entails for all of us who are found in Christ and baptized into him. Your children are precious because Jesus has written his name on them. They belong in the family of God just as much as they do in your own family. You don't don't wait until your kids are old enough to decide whether they're yours. Well, we'll have these kids and then, you know, we'll cross our fingers maybe and pray for them and hope that one day they grow up and decide to be a Jeffrey. You know, sorry, brother, you're stuck with a son. (laughs) And we do that 
because we love them. In fact, our love for our children is shown in precisely the fact that we still love them as our children, even when they wake us up six times in the night or do all kinds of other things that drive us nuts. We still love them. What do you think? You're more gracious than God? Do you think, do you think you're graciously capable of receiving into your household marking with your name somebody who is just a screaming six-hour-old ball of trouble, and the Lord can't do that. I know none of you think that. All we've got to do now is say it with water. What a blessing it is that our Heavenly Father, actually, He shows us how to be fathers, doesn't He? By welcoming us in spite of everything. Of course, the obligations are no less potent. This is the point that's worth remembering and, and which we might carelessly forget. Your children belong to Jesus, which means they belong to Jesus. And you are therefore responsible to teach them the ways of Jesus, and they're responsible to walk in those ways, just like your biological family. You, you get to a certain point, and I'm not being autobiographical in any specific sense here, but all of parents recognize this, where in one way or another you say words to the effect of, uh, that's not how we do things, young lady. That's not how we do things, young man. That's not how we do things. You're Jeffrey. Cut that out. You're a Christian. Cut that out. You belong to Jesus. You have obligations to the one who bought you from sin and death. In formal theological terms, we might say that the realities of God's grace are not divorced from the means of God's grace. God is gracious to our children. How is he gracious? Well, by giving them you as parents. And the, the blessings are experienced as we bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And they learn to worship God in church, and they, they're part of a Christian community. They learn to love other people, and they rise in the presence of a gray head, and they show, show honor to their mothers, and they, their, holy lives are their personal lives are characterized by a fight against sin. And they learn in hard circumstances to be content and joyful as we teach them those things. It's just really bizarre to me. You know, we are... Our corner of the Reformed world in recent years has been the destination for a whole bunch of people who have been embracing paedobaptist theology, which is wonderful, because what you've realized is that the covenant blessings apply to your children. Have you realized that the covenant warnings apply to your children? And they apply to you. Because... Your children belong to Jesus Christ. Third, very briefly, our children are filled with the Spirit. Let's just state the obvious again and, and just make a brief comment about this. Verse 38, second half of that verse. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise, which is, remember, it's being part of the family of Abraham by faith, is for you and for your children. The gift of the Spirit of God. Calvin points out that faith is the principal work of the Spirit. You see all this fits together? What does the Spirit do? He creates faith. That is to say, he creates a disposition towards Christ of dependence. 
and of a longing to walk in his ways and of trust in him and confidence in his word and a commitment to do what he says, faith and faithfulness, see, go hand in hand. That's what the Spirit does. Spirit creates repentance. Repentance is a gift from the Spirit. And then it's also the Spirit, therefore, who leads us. Look at verse 40. When Peter says, with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, so what's the rest of that sermon all about? He said, bring the kids. And now he's preaching. You can bet that Peter didn't preach just for like two minutes. He would preach for at least 38, probably more. What's the summary of everything else he has to say? Quote, verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The, the word crooked is found in the Proverbs. It means perverse. Somebody who delights in doing evil. But crooked generation is a fascinating little phrase because it's really only found in one other part of the Scriptures. It's found in the description of the people of Israel during the Exodus narratives. In Deuteronomy uh, 35, verse 5, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. They're the people who wanted to go back to Egypt. You see, you've got that community in the wilderness. Who, I don't want to be with the people of God anymore. Well, you're not actually part of the people of God anymore. Remember they died in the desert? Crooked generation. The crooked generation is those who, they, they, they've escaped from Egypt, they get to the brink of the promised land and they don't want to be a part of it anymore. And they're not a part of it anymore. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's actually a really intriguing parallel here. The same word crooked, it's very rare in the New Testament, but it's used in John the Baptist's preaching in Luke chapter 3. And you know Luke and Acts written by the same guy? And there's a kind of parallel between Luke 3 and Acts 2. So Luke 3, John the Baptist talks about the crooked being made straight, quote from Isaiah 40. Baptism of repentance. And he says, you've got to wait for the baptism of the Spirit and fire. Here is the baptism of the Spirit and fire. And you've got to save yourselves from the crooked generation through this baptism. It's as though the first baptism is coming out of Egypt. And there you are in the wilderness. And now you're at the brink of the promised land. Moses, Joshua, John the Baptist, Jesus. Are you going to enter across the next baptism, the Jordan River, into the fullness of the land? Are you going to conquer the world in Christ? This is the crunch moment at the start of the book of Acts, they've just received the Spirit, are you going to come over the Jordan? Well, you better be baptised then, because that's what's going to happen in the Jordan. As you go through the Jordan into the land, ready to conquer the world, which is what the whole of the rest of the book of Acts is about. You see, this is not an issue that we want to divide over, but it turns out to be a really significant one. Really significant. As the Lord receives our children as his. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you for your abundant kindness to us. Teach us to walk in faithfulness, we pray, and to receive with appropriate joy and sobriety of mind this promise. Inclusion in your family and the gift of your spirit through baptism. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.